Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Welcome to episode three, where we dig into Billy's debut solo album, Cold Spring Harbor. You know, this uh, makes a lot of sense to start with this album, obviously. It's an album I haven't listened to in years, really. But I gave it a couple good listens uh, this week, and I got to say, you know, it's a lot better than I remember. It was a lot of fun. It was cozy. Yeah, it is. I haven't listened to this album as much as I should, actually. But it's a really great album for a first album. Yeah, I would say, you know, anyone that's been listening to Billy for a while and hasn't gotten to this album or hasn't uh, dusted it off recently, you know, if you've really cycled through the big ones, uh, go back to Cold Spring Harbor. You're going to find a lot of stuff that you forgot about. You're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Agreed. And I don't know if my lack of listening was tainted by Billy's opinion, because I know in general he doesn't love it either for a myriad of reasons we're going to get into but it was really it felt like listening to it for the first time because it has been a while since I listened to it front to back and there's some things I forgot about the record and just it felt like a new experience and it's it's really a treat to listen to a young Billy finding his voice as a singer songwriter yeah and you know to that point this was uh, another advantage of growing up I think in the pre-internet era you know when we were kids and you just picked up a Billy Joel album because you saw it in the store and you, you didn't know anything about the history behind it and even if you didn't know any of the songs on it that didn't matter because at the time you know, when, when, when I was a kid anyway, I didn't know what all the hits were. So all I knew was that it was an album and I put it on and kind of got a kick out of it. And that was the end of it. We used to go to uh, Long Beach Island in New Jersey every summer. And, you know, I'm the only weirdo that goes to the beach and knew where the, the music store was. And, you know, make my parents take me there. And, you know, one year I got the Cold Spring Harbor on cassette and I would like kind of put on a song or two before going to the beach each day. And, uh mm-hmm. I remember that 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 Shore House sort of like getting woven into the fabric of the album to me, which which really kind of fit, you know, that that kind of little creaky house. And, you know, just listening to these real spare kind of singer songwriter songs. It was a Mm -hmm. was interesting. Billy originally didn't want to be a singer songwriter. He didn't want to put out his own records. You know, he had just come off of uh, doing the Hassles and Attila. Uh, the Hassles were signed to United Artists, had some success in Long Island and regionally and nationally. And then when they broke up, drummer John Small and Billy formed Attila, which, as he described, a two-man <laughs> heavy metal group. So... <laughs> Picture this. If you haven't heard Attila, it's actually better than a lot of people give it credit for. Oh, yeah. Billy was plugging his Hammond organ into these custom amps, these really loud, gritty, like guitar sounding (laughs) amps and just kicking up the overdrives. It kind of was more in the wheelhouse of like a Deep Purple than a James Taylor, (laughs) you know. I was just about to say I was listening to Machine Head recently and I'm like, yeah. There's some some parallels here. (laughs) Exactly. And so coming off of Attila, I think Billy, I'm just speculating, but I feel like he may have had his fill of the band thing for a while and was really wanting to become a singer-songwriter. And I've heard him speak to that a bit, that that's really what he wanted to do, was become a songwriter for other people. And as he was asking around, everyone was saying, well, you know, if you want to write for other people, you got to put out your own records so they can hear your material. He thought that sounded kind of strange, but ultimately went with it. I wrote this album not as a singer-songwriter, but as a songwriter. For I was thinking of other people doing this, uh, this material on this album. 
but the advice I got from people in the music business was, well, if you want people to hear your songs, make an album. And then you go out on the road and you do shows and you promote your album. I thought this is a strange way to be a songwriter. That's where my career went. And as a result, the first batch of songs that he put down to tape was Cold Spring Harbor. As you listen to it, you'll hear certain little motifs and idioms that you realize became a part of his sound uh, in subsequent albums. But knowing that when you look back and you uh, listen to it, you can really hear where he's, you know, especially either imitating other songwriters or, or clearly trying to write in other voices or even in, in a much more generalized way than he's known for. And I would imagine that was so another uh, singer could could slip into that and, and find something to work with there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this was him trying to write songs that a variety of other people could record. The result of that is having songs that do have variances and you could hear different artists doing. So with this record, he was not signed. He was an independent singer, songwriter, artist playing local clubs and piano bars and whatnot and Along came a guy named Artie Rip, and he was the first person to sign Billy and start managing him. Artie Rip had a record company called Family Productions and signed Billy up to do his first record, Cold Spring Harbor. And later to find out, not only did Billy just sign a record deal to put out this album, but he also signed away publishing, royalties, copyrights, you name it. So many things he signed away when he signed with Artie Rip here. But the result ended up being the very first album, Cold Spring Harbor. A small advance got Billy into the studio and recording. Cold Spring Harbor was originally released November 1st, 1971 on Artie Rip's label, Family Productions. And that's in part uh, why if you have the old records uh, up through An Innocent Man, you'll see the Family Productions uh, label next to Columbia on, uh, on all those records. Part of the deal that Billy signed was uh, that uh, Family Records would put out his next 10 albums. And uh, after things didn't go well, which we'll get into in a moment, uh, when he signed to Columbia, there was a lot of legal wrangling. And uh, along with Billy still giving up a lot of um, money and and rights and things for all his songs through the next nine albums, uh, back to Artie Rip and Family Productions, he also had to have that... uh, Really kind of weird-looking label on all the records Yeah, through An Innocent Man. All those albums that have that Family Productions logo on it, Artie Rip was getting a cut. Yeah. So he was involved with the Cold Spring Harbor album and nothing else, but all those albums that followed, he was getting a cut of it and a percentage of every record sold, which is wild. Who would have thought a guy with a name like Artie Rip was going to rope you? The guy sounds like a used car salesman. He really does. And I don't know if you've ever seen the interviews, like 2020 interviews. He he kind of acted the part as well, too. It just Maybe it's just knowing what we all know now, but I remember going back and watching some of those. You know, He's like, yeah. I don't get the phone call saying my girlfriend dumped me or this or that. He's like, I just collect the checks. I'm like, uh. I'm like I just need a shower after that. Like, you don't even yeah. pretend like you care. <laughs> um yeah even just looking at those pictures is like i'm looking at pictures of him now on google he, he oh man yeah i guess you can't talk too much trash he got billy started but still man right. you, you, yeah. a bit of a payoff there yeah exactly that's kind of i'm kind of torn i mean i know he did mm. some terrible things to billy and signed got a young naive artist to sign yeah. away so much but he I mean, if that whole set of situations, circumstances didn't come about, 
we may not have gotten the career that we did out of him. And so you never know, you know, it's the only way to get to where we are today is to follow the path that happened. So, yeah. so it played a part in it, no doubt. But there is also um, the big way in which he dropped the ball on this album, which is how the original album sounded. And if you do have this album, odds are you, you're not hearing uh, the original version of it. Most of us have Apparently, except for Michael, who's got the original, and I might have to take a plane out just to just to fondle it a little because yeah. I, I have the the remaster. Uh, the bulk of the copies out there, most of them are the uh, remasters that Columbia put out in '83. But originally, when Family Productions uh, put out the album in '71, the album got mastered and pressed at the wrong speed, so <laughs> everything was too fast. Uh, Billy would liken it to sounding like the Chipmunks. It's not quite that extreme. <laughs> But everything is sped up and pitched up to where it does not sound natural and it doesn't sound right. And yeah. and he let it go and it got pressed <laughs> and released just like that. I couldn't imagine as, a, you know, your first album coming out, you're just excited to finally have this thing done and out and you put it on the turntable. I couldn't imagine. I would have been hor- horrified. With your friends, no less. Was Didn't he have like a party and like all his friends were there and just... I'm sure digging right into him. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he was, I remember the story goes, he just picks it up off the turntable and smashes it up against the wall. He was just so like embarrassed and petrified with how it came out. And yeah, I mean, that experience alone, I'd, I'd say would, you know, I mean, if that were me, I'm, I'm sure that would color my, you know, my thoughts on the album from that day on. I mean, because you just associate it with that. I mean, what, gosh, what a horrible way to come out into the world as a singer-songwriter. Take it at face value. It's almost a solo record. You know, there's not a lot. There's a couple songs which sounds like it's maybe just Billy, but, you know, put some headphones on and listen. There's orchestration. There's a lot of careful moves on that. You know, this wasn't um, this wasn't a ramshackle production. Um, there's, you know, there was a lot of thought put into it, I think. Yeah, it, it really was. It, it was, I, I think... To Artie Rip's credit, he did see the potential in Billy, and he he saw what we all know now, that he Mm -hmm. had the potential to become a huge star and a big success. And so I think he was really trying to, you know, lay the groundwork for that. And that, that, that album, you know, for, you know, 1971, Billy was 22 years old. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very mature record for someone who's 22, I gotta say. Uh, one quick note I just want to make about the, uh, the the speeding up thing. Like I said, this week I was listening to um, some needle drops of the original, and it's 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 pretty noticeable. But if you want the Cliff Notes version, just go to Why Judy Why. I think that one got the worst of that treatment. I played it in the house uh, today, and my girlfriend and my daughter were just cracking up. I was like, "Do you guys ever hear Billy Joel sound like this?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one is because you know his voice on that record is in a higher register as it is, um, but that mm-hmm. one just has just more of a gentle, high tenor or tone to it. That yeah. yeah, that just it just sounds makes it sound wobbly and high and just really off. And yeah, you're yeah. right about that one. What's interesting is I never heard the original version until 15, 20 years ago, much, much after the album came out. The only version I ever knew is the one that Columbia Records put out in 1983. So to me, that was the version. Mm-hmm. And when I first got my hands on an original copy of Cold Spring Harbor, by then I knew how, you know, the whole issue with the speeding up and the mastering and all that, I knew 
that that was the case, but I had no idea that there were a number of different mixing and production elements in that first oh, yeah. version that did not make it to the 1983 version. Most notably is You Can Make Me Free where they just chopped off that giant uh, Maybe I'm a Maze Jam at the end. On the Columbia reissue, they just lopped off that last three minutes of it. They just did a hard fade out, you know, after the last chorus, I think it is. And then the song's Mm -hmm. done. I didn't even realize until listening to the original version as well, too, is on Everybody Loves You Now and Turn Around, they completely re-recorded the drums, Mm -hmm. um, keyboards, not the piano, um, the overdub keyboards, and then I think some guitars. So if you listen to the original version, it's a completely different drummer, completely different parts, completely different Mm -hmm. everything. Maybe all the lights turned on you. Now you're in the center of the stage. Everything revolves on what you do. Ah, you were in your prime, you've come of age. And you can always have your way somehow. Cause everybody loves you now. But I thought I was your friend. And in 1983, uh, Artie had some studio musicians came in and recut <laughs> some of those rhythm tracks and added some keyboards to give it a little bit more of a modern sound. But Everybody Loves You Now and Turn Around are very mm. different. You want you got to wonder why he decided to, to muck with it that much. At that point, 83, Billy's a hot commodity. It doesn't matter what you put out, you're going to be fine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think part of it was he knew that adding a little bit of polish to it might make it sit well, sit closer in with the albums that were coming out around that time. So I think if mm-hmm. I think probably in his eyes, just cleaning up a little bit and him still owning the rights to the recording. I think he came to Columbia Records saying, hey, do you want to put this out? Because Artie Rip, I know, was completely involved in the reissue. Billy was mm-hmm. not. He had nothing to do with it. I don't know if he protested it, but he was completely Mm -hmm. hands off. This was straight up an Artie Rip Columbia business decision. And, um, you know, he's gone on to say years later, he's like, if you want the record, steal it. I don't care. He's like, this is, (laughs) you know, he really isn't a fan of it overall. But I don't know. There's elements in both versions that I really like. And just production and everything aside i mean cold spring harbor featured songs like everybody loves you now she's got away i mean Mm -hmm. songs that went on to become absolute classics in the billy joel canon like i said you know i was thinking falling of the rain especially that intro you know you really hear that fast piano style that became very signature to billy yeah um you know it's sort of the precursor to something like angry young man uh running on ice you know anything with those those really quick melodic uh, runs. Yep. Um, you know, that's that's probably the first instance of it on record, I would think. One song I remember that always caught my ear was Tomorrow Is Today, because that just had a very 
Billy vibe to it. I could have seen it on a couple different records. But what's interesting mm-hmm. is that that album in general, his voice, his register is higher than it is on almost every other album of his, except when yeah. he gets to that section in Tomorrow Is Today, where it's like, oh my, going to the river. <laughs> go. He drops it down, and I'm like, oh, there's a little hint of Billy to come. Oh my, I'm going to the river, gonna take a ride, and the Lord will deliver me, make my bed. I'm gonna lie in it if it don't come, sure gonna die in it. There's a few little moments like that throughout the album where he kind of drops it down, gives it a little bit of that soul that Billy kind of mm-hmm. kind of bring out more and more as the years went on. Um, it's yeah. just funny how that kind of creeped out there a little bit. Anytime he kind of had like an angry vocal, that was I think that was the genesis of that. <laughs> I think so too. That, yeah, that when was he, a real New York moment too. <laughs> yeah, when he when he finally started to loosen up and kind of let his mm-hmm. vo- vocal push a little bit and just give it mm-hmm. a little bit of that, where there was there was still some tenderness here and there, but he would allow it to push through and allow his personality and attitude to get through. Cause yeah. I, cause I think maybe too. I don't know. I could be wrong, but since this was geared towards other people, you know, maybe he didn't try to inject, interject too much of his own personality into it, or maybe right. he was just still developing it. You know, it could be a combination. Yeah, it's tough to tell if he maybe even did things in different styles, even within a song, just to give an idea of what a different person could do with it. I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, tomorrow is today. That one and like that one and got to begin again. Um, you know, listening to it now and having a much wider musical vocabulary than I, when I was a kid, I was like, wow, that is really some Carole King. Oh, That's, absolutely. Uh, right out of that um, tapestry era. But I've got to begin again Though I don't know how to start Yes, I've got to begin again And it's hard And just to put things into perspective, you know, when this was released in 1971 and Billy's putting it out, thinking about writing for other people, you know, kind of looking at some of these top songs, uh, Billboard's top 100 singles of 71. Let's see. Top 10. You got Joy to the World, Three Dog Night, mm-hmm. Maggie May. Um, Carol King's right up there. Uh, it's Too Late, Back With I Feel the Earth Move. Yeah. Might have been the other way around. This has it as a slash on one, but whatever. <laughs> One Bad Apple by the Osmonds, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. You know, so you really see that those singer-songwriter yeah. tracks really coming up. Even The Temptations are on there with Just My Imagination, which oh, is yeah. a, you know, a little mid-tempo, nice little, almost almost a ballad. Yeah. Uh, the Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, but the Joan Baez version of it, What's Going On. Yeah. Ain't No Sunshine, you know. Oh, yeah. Tom Jones is still on there hitting it. Grassroots got yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, My Sweet Lord, George Harrison, The Carpenters. Carpenters mm-hmm. got two in a row there. Gordon mm-hmm. Lightfoot. Um, you know, and it's, you know, when you think about him uh, putting together a, uh, an album that's going to be for other people to uh, to sing these songs, you know, putting it into perspective of what was coming out at the time, yeah, yeah it makes a little more sense. You know, it really makes it fit in a bit more. Yeah, it think, really um, does. Yeah, and you can hear, like, a lot of those artists you mentioned, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, I could hear them cutting, you know, turn around or she's got away. And, you know, the, it really does make sense. He really was writing for, you know, a lot of those contemporary artists at that time. 
Yeah, and for as much as he always likes to talk about who he's imitating or who he's writing in the style of, certainly uh, makes a lot of sense, especially on on an album like this. Even yeah. those demos too, you know, especially you can really hear them going for other people. But again, you know, some of these songs, it's like he had to know he had his own sound um, burgeoning yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And I, I think he was always saying, you know, he would always say that, oh, I'm just like you said, I'm just trying to imitate mm-hmm. so-and-so or trying to sound like Ray Charles or Steve Winwood yeah. or whoever. <laughs> but yeah, those are some of his big influences for sure. But he really has a sound as well. And he really and yeah. that developed started developing with this record and you can put on a song and say, yeah, that's a, that really sounds like Billy Joel. I mean, that's yeah. whether he wants to admit it or not, he does have his own style. <laughs> yeah. I really think it's that classical influence. It's, you know, all of a sudden when you're not playing three chord rockers and, and right. blues progressions, mm-hmm. uh, you just, you know, your hands are going in different places and it's, um, it's what I, I, I've come to think that it's also what I like about the old school Genesis with Steve Hackett. Yeah. Because, uh, I was reading about just how many chord inversions he used. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you think about it, if you're playing acoustic guitar, you know, and you're strumming a G chord, like everybody knows, or a C chord, you're playing the, the notes in a specific order yeah. and with an inversion, you're playing those notes out of order. So it's a, it's a, it's a chord, you know, it's a chord you've heard a million times, yes. but it's going to sound slightly different. And I think that's, uh, with Steve Hackett and then with Billy Joel, I think that's what's happening is he's adding those extra you know he's adding those extra notes the sevenths and the ninths or an alternate root yeah to the to the chord it's it's a couple more notes in there and then he's also mixing them up you know it makes it sound like something you can latch on to it doesn't sound avant-garde it doesn't sound like 12 tone or something yeah but it's still refreshing absolutely and that's a unique gift that not a lot of songwriters can do because i find that it's Mm -hmm. either one or the other like you're either writing songs that are super accessible and super poppy and super simple, or you're writing songs that are super intricate and super complex that are really hard for people that, you know, casual people to sink their teeth into. He was kind of able to marry those. So he was able to kind yeah. of get intricate and, and do some really creative things and have some like wild chord changes and phrasings and things like that. Yeah but wrap it up in a three minute pop song that some guy turning on the radio can just get into out of the gate and without mm-hmm. even realizing they're listening to something that's complex while still sounding simple. Yeah. That was also the secret. I think to Motown too, was a lot of interesting arrangements that you didn't realize were a bit complex, you know, just say nothing to James Jamerson on bass, but, uh, oh, yeah. you know, even, um, you know, looking again at that list of, uh, songs from that, from that era, um, potentially put my foot in my mouth but i would say a lot of the ones that have stuck around were the ones that were you know a little bit idiosyncratic ain't no sunshine was it's a weird song yeah you know um carol king uh wrote very i don't know that i I couldn't say that she wrote idiosyncratically but she had a very distinct style that Mm -hmm. you always knew it was carol king and when you went back and and you piece together uh you know songs by girl groups and brill building stuff that she wrote you're like wow yeah that's definitely carol king right you know? um you know you, you know there's still some motown on there some classic motown yeah uh, absolutely yeah. uh motown see i'm a detroit guy so i was born and raised it's just outside of detroit oh. so you know you talking about you know being a new yorker and like billy mm-hmm. just being a part of the fabric of new york growing up and so that's how Motown was for me growing up and, you know, yeah. the Temptations, the Four Tops and Supremes and the Jackson Five and all of that. And, you know, growing uh-huh. up, you know, my mom grew up on the same street as Motown, I believe, miles down the road. But I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, Hitsville, USA yeah. was 
in the neighborhood practically. And I, I, you know, I had the pleasure of going to Hitsville USA and actually walking through and doing the tour of Motown uh, years ago before I moved out West and the history of that room. Like yeah. you, you just walk in and just standing in the live room where like hundreds and hundreds of these records were cut you could just like soak it up and you just like feel <laughs> like underneath the piano, like the floorboards are worn from like the piano players just like stomping their feet as they're playing, <laughs> digging in and just like, yeah. and it's all there. It's like all that character. And it was, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it, it looks exactly like it looked in 1955 as well, which is uh-huh. so cool. Yeah. Sun Studios is, is like that too. Did you ever go to, did you ever go down to uh, Nashville? Or, I've been um, in. Did you ever go down to Memphis? Memphis, yeah. I haven't been to Memphis. I've been to Memphis, but I have not been mm. to Sun Studios. That's a great tour, um, especially because it's still a working studio, and uh, the the producers that are there now they'll walk you through, and you get to stand in the live room. Yeah, and uh, you know that's one of those places too where you know the the unique configuration of the room had a lot to do with the sound and it was like an x on the floor and this was the best place to put the stand-up bass like this is where you put it you know this yeah. is where you place the mic stand and this is where it sounded great but it was the same thing you kind of stood there and you, you felt it you know yeah well and yeah. this was before you know you had rack effects and audio plugins <laughs> and you could make anything sound any way you wanted Back when we're talking about these early Billy records and the, you know, mm-hmm. the Sun records and the Motown stuff, it's like they had these rooms that had character, but they had to work the rooms to get just yeah. the right sound. And, you know, every place had its sweet spot. And like, you know, in Motown, mm-hmm. like Barry Gordy built his own like reverb chamber, like in the ceiling <laughs> of like one yeah. of the hallways to where they do some <laughs> vocals and do some different things. And, you know, it's, you know... I feel like recordings were a lot more creative than because they really had a lot less resources and still were making some of the best sounding records I've heard in my lifetime. Got to Begin Again is is such a, a really beautiful song. Uh, it's sim- mm-hmm. it's simple. There's not too much to it, but it's just the melody is just has I don't know that that's one on that album that I I keep coming back to as yeah. one one that was never a hit that ninety out of a hundred people may have never heard in their life. But mm-hmm. that's um, that's one of my favorites. Do you have any off off this record? Really, um, I think you can make me free. I mean, uh, everybody loves you now. I always consider that a song's in the attic cut. Uh, you know, she's got a way, again, you know, listening to that stuff as a kid, you fast forward right past it. You know, nobody's got the patience for that when you're eight, eight or nine years old. Sure. But, um, you know, going back and listening to that one, I forgot about that orchestration. I forgot those, those little touches, a little bit of bass in it. Um, again, because I don't think that any of that was on the songs in the attic. Lib would just hit the cymbal once or twice through the song, and that mm-hmm. was it. Mm-hmm. But those other elements, man, they really uh, did a lot for that song, really uh, swelled it out just right. 
she's got a way and everybody loves you now i think because i i fell in love with songs in the attic so much i i think i almost associate those two songs more with songs in the attic than i do with cold right. spring harbor everybody loves you now on the attic version just has such a just a raw energy that the band brought to it and i think that's part of why songs in the attic ended up being what it was is to give those older yeah. songs the energy that you know the band live that he was playing mm-hmm. with then had but going back to cold spring harbor it, it really set the foundation for the albums to come i think it's a very important part because you do hear a lot of early stages of the styles of the sounds and the the songwriting structures that would follow in the albums to come there's also a uh, about 45 minutes of demos from cold spring harbor up on youtube there are a couple songs that are a little higher up in the billy joel canning if um you know if you're a big fan you know songs like rosalinda and josephine Mm-hmm. And those would be ones that never made an album, but um, you know, people out there that really know those, um, those didn't make it. Those, but those lasted a little longer. I mean, there are you'll you, you can find uh, TV appearances later on with those songs on them. You know, Josephine and I believe Rosalinda. Rosalinda. Both on the, uh, yeah, there was another one called "Where's the Revolution." I remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I gotta say this almost made me wonder if uh, if either consciously and it doesn't want to tell you or subconsciously he was making his own album because when you listen to some of these demos that didn't make the album, a lot of those songs are really the ones that sounded good but much more generic. Um, yeah, yeah, I could hear yeah, that. Cross to Bear, have you heard, you know that one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one's uh, that one's real gospely. Like he, he's clearly writing for uh, the band or Leon Russell or something. Yes. Even, you know, Nocturne with lyrics still has that late 60s feel. It was like that one and Only a Man, you feel like that was like almost remnants of the hassles maybe. Yeah, that I agree. still had that, that yeah. late 60s chamber pop feel. Yes. Oh, and then My Lady. That's, that's straight up Cat Stevens, Cat man. Stevens. He was doing it. They yeah. was doing a big Cat Stevens on that one. Mm-hmm. I really, I really dug that one. So another one of the demos that ended up being kind of a hybrid of three songs that would come later is December Song, which has also been called uh, "Until You Come to Me." And it's interesting because the opening kind of you and you caught this the the opening little the cadence of the the piano part. What are you hearing there? It's it's really um, it's not quite Summer Highland Falls, but it's got that that feel yeah and when you listen to it when you hear it you're like that's that's a billy joel cadence that's a billy joel riff yeah and that kind of became one of his you know many kind of signature styles just that kind of Mm -hmm. thing that ended up in summer highland falls but yeah you hear that in the intro here december song and then it goes into the main verse which is essentially the melody of piano man but in four four time instead of three four so it's it's a different Mm -hmm. time signature but it's it's straight up the melody for piano man as that part ends, going into the, the pre-chorus or the chorus, whatever it may be, um, uh, he'll say the line, um, don't say a word until you come to me. The melody of that is the melody of Turnaround. Mm-hmm. Uh, You've been gone too long. So that ended up in Turnaround. So what you have, this demo, he kind of pulled it apart. He took that little bit for Turnaround, mm-hmm. saved the verses for Piano Man. Maybe this song doesn't stand well on its own, but, you know, hey, I can take this part and put it here, and I can take this part and put it here in another song. And that's really what what you hear there.
So yeah, if look it up on YouTube. Um, where where did you find it, Jack? There's a great video. It's called uh, "Billy Joel Cold Spring Harbor Demos Down the River of Dreams." Uh, it's 47 minutes long. It's got the Family Productions logo, and uh, somebody in the comments puts the timestamps and the names of the songs in the comments up towards the top, so you'll find it. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Too go back and give that another listen. There's a little piano line from She's Got Away in there as well. Oh, no kidding. It See? just goes by like once real quick. Just as I was listening to it now, I was like, oh, I, wow. that, that was the other thing in there. I'll have to yeah. go check that out. Yeah, that totally missed it. So there's another, another. wow. So look at that, a little demo that ended up <laughs> part, you know, part of four songs that ended up being classics of his. That's that's pretty wild. I, you know, again, this is, um, you know, another testament to, to at least with songwriting in general, was like back then um you know if you're a musician now you no doubt have uh, probably dozens of uh, little recordings on your phone mm-hmm. where you put your riffs and things yeah you know it's it's a, it's a, i think it's a really different ball game to think about that you had to write you know you had to write this stuff out and you had to remember it for oh, the yeah. most part i mean i don't you know it probably took a while in 1971 before you had a reel to reel with a microphone or something right oh yeah right. I, I would think i would think yeah, yeah. Certainly nowhere near as prevalent as today. Yeah. yeah, and you know that you know the reel to reels or just like a little tape deck thing. That's kind of then how it would graduate to like putting down, putting down ideas, and then in the eighties you kind of cross over to like four track recorders and and mm-hmm. things of that nature um, just to get your ideas. You know, and some people have the um, amazing ability to write a song in one fell swoop, and I know Billy's done that um, with. Uh, a few songs over the years and but yeah some songs are just end up being little bits and pieces of like oh you know have a little melody idea or a little tag idea that you you're not sure where it's gonna go but you know you kind of file it away and like oh that would work really great as a you know a bridge in this song and you know so that's kind of how a lot of people to songwriting uh you know one of the artists i'm i'm a big fan of the band metallica their songs are all about the riff so mm-hmm. it's all about the guitar riff and so when they're doing records they'll just assemble thousands and thousands of riffs and lars mm-hmm. the drummer will just go through these riffs and pair them together it's like oh this kind of works with this and they'll frankenstein these riffs together and then that's the genesis of a metallica song and uh over the years they've put out all these box sets um they're going through their catalog, putting these deluxe box sets where it's like uh-huh. 10 CDs, 11 DVDs, seven records. It's just these crazy huge sets, but there'll be a disc or two that's literally called riff tapes. So you'll have <laughs> like a cassette recording of, you know, the guitar riff chorus for Master of Puppets. That's like 10 seconds long while James was just getting the idea of it. And <laughs> then you'll hear like another little 
snippet of like working on this idea. And so, yeah. So that's kind of how a lot of songwriting works. It's like, you just kind of take pieces, parts and kind of figure out how they're going to get married together. It's, you know, it's really interesting to hear you say that because a couple of years ago, uh, there's a really good Metallica tribute band up here in Philly. And I had gone to see them. My, my takeaway from it was that uh, I felt like what made Metallica really cool was that it was a lot of intricate stuff that happened Mm-hmm. But they weren't um, they weren't music school kids, and you you felt like this was something they put together in wood shop. Right. You know, you could you could feel them bolting these pieces together. Yeah. And there's a real there's a real charm to that. I had to learn uh, disposable heroes to play it with like a day to go. Somebody oh, was doing like geez. a tribute thing. Yeah. First of all, I needed an oxygen machine when I was done on drums playing it. <laughs> yeah, you're but not. But my kidding. chart, yeah, my chart for that was like two pages, and it was like I had to name every riff, and like this riff happens two times. Right. Then it happens three times. Yeah. Then it happens four or once, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a certain charm to, to that that uh, I didn't realize until I had sat down and really listened to it. And it's interesting to hear you explain that that's pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and they did it with such innocence, you know, like later people were like, you know, do you realize like in, you know, Blackened, there's like five time signature changes? And <laughs> they're like, no, that's just, we just wrote it how we thought it sounded good. Yeah. And they weren't mm-hmm. thinking about key changes and time signature changes and all this stuff and it was just that's just kind of how it came together yeah that's that's wild now back to 70s singer songwriters (laughs) (laughs) right smooth segue from uh 80s metal and metallica to uh (laughs) billy joel again yeah but you know it's it's you know it's interesting to look at all these things and how people put stuff together yeah they just put out a uh a huge box set of hot rats by frank zappa oh yeah and they've been calling that one um like it's a piece of process art because he did so much chopping in the studio that yeah. they put together like sort of all the stuff that was recorded for the album and you'll hear it evolve over like six records. Yeah. But really then you have someone like Billy that when you go back and you listen to these demos and you listen to uh, Cold Spring Harbor, you, you, you see that happen in, in not in real time, but uh, you see, you can really follow the progression and it tells its own story. Yeah, it really does. You know, I've always been interested in the process. Maybe it's because I'm a musician as well, too. I don't know. But like, I love, you know, some people don't like to know how things are done. Don't want to hear about how the sausage is made, but you just want to eat it. And that's (laughs) totally fine. But I've always loved knowing, like, what was his frame of mind when he was in the studio doing this? Or why did the drummer choose this fill to go into the second verse? Or, you know, I've, I've just always been really interested in the process and the story and all the different elements that made this album what it was I, I that's just always yeah. been interesting to me it even makes the uh the, the image on the back that much more interesting to kind of look at yeah uh, it's such a such a nice black and white image of him sitting at this piano probably in his house it looks like a yeah couple of bottles in the background it's yeah. very silhouetted yeah black and white yeah. it's a very nice picture yeah it is that front cover too that's another difference between the columbia version and the original family productions um the original version is a lot more zoomed out so you see a lot more mm-hmm. of the surrounding area there and then for some reason when they reissued it on columbia it's a tighter crop on on billy's face um yeah so that's another way to tell and an- another way too is uh like you were saying music aside but if you look at the the label on the record 
the Columbia version is a typical red label with Columbia printed in a circle on the outer rim of it. And, mm-hmm. and it says Columbia Records and Family Productions. And the Family Productions label is more of a blue and a green with the printing on the label in silver. And that's the, the original. The original, yeah. And yeah. actually the original has been heavily bootlegged. Like vinyl has been heavily bootlegged yes. over the years. And actually one of the most telltale signs of a bootleg because the original family productions logo had a bunch of stars all around it. Mm -hmm. And for some reason the bootlegs didn't, I don't know why. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's one of the telltale signs, um, of bootleg versus original, but yeah. So those are a couple ways to kind of tell which version you have, you know, between bootleg original version and the uh, 83 Columbia version. Yeah, the uh, the back of the '83 version says this album contains previously released material, and mm-hmm. says also on cassette. There's another good video too, um, with a guy just going through a bootleg version of uh, of culture of the original pressing. And yeah, he was obviously the cropping is one, um, the shading around Billy's left eye is yeah. is a lot darker. Like you almost yes. can't make it out. And, yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then if you open it, like the cardboard is flimsier. He pointed that out. That was the style back in the late sixties and late seventies. It was or early seventies was like the heavier cardstock, and like mm-hmm. the the back cover is actually pasted on. Yeah. When I first became aware of Cold Spring Harbor, I don't think I knew that it was the first album at the time, so I really wasn't mm-hmm. aware of where it sat. Um, it did sound yeah. older to me, but I don't think I ever really knew it was his first release because you know, it came out after an innocent man that reissue because the, ori- mm-hmm. the original cold spring harbor um i think by the time he signed with columbia records a year later any remaining copies or whatever were pulled from the marketplace um so yeah. that so that album did not stick around too long between the production mastering problem and um billy ultimately moving on to columbia records you know 11 12 years later when columbia you know reissued it that was my first experience and going back and listening to the 71 version it it sounds like a very different album to me than the 83 remix (laughs) um so i think the 83 version is the one that i'm much more familiar with i remember i didn't buy it but uh, i remember like on uh, on amazon and maybe around 2005 2006 Somebody was selling MP3s of uh, of needle drop records of it that you could download of the original, and it's funny. It's it's. I think the the one thing that doesn't exist anywhere officially is the speed corrected original version, and that's something I think people have just done yeah. themselves over time. Yeah. Because you know you could get the original, which had the original um, instrumentation, had the full version of uh, "You Can Make Me Free," right, but had the chipmunk sound. Yeah. Or you you could get the uh, the remaster in 80, 84. Yeah. And uh, you know, but it's the right speed. It sounds more like Billy, even though he sounds young. Mm-hmm. But you lose these original elements. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while, if you kind of look around online, you'll find people that have done speed uh, that have done pitch correction, which I'm sure has gotten even better now. Right. Where they've sl- they figured out how to slow it down just enough so you can get what it was supposed to sound like and yeah you know of all the stuff they put out yeah i'm surprised between stuff like my lives and 12 gardens live which billy's you know not too fond of or Mm -hmm. at least ambivalent towards right and the label's just putting it out you know they haven't done a a reissue where it's just finally the original i mean Mm -hmm. it's short enough not that anybody's buying cds anymore anyway but you could probably fit both versions on a cd you know Oh, yeah, because I think it's only yeah. like a 30-minute record, so you can easily yeah. do them both back-to-back right. like that. I actually have a turntable where you can actually manually adjust the speed 
that the record is spinning. Oh, yeah. So because it's a uh-huh. bell, it's a bell driven turntable. So I can uh-huh. I've got a little dial to where I can, you know, as the belt loosens, I can adjust the pitch and everything like that. So I've actually toyed mm-hmm. with the idea of pitch correcting it on the turntable and recording yeah. my I've got a nice clean copy recording my copy in and and instead of trying to do some digital pitch correction you know if I figure if I can play the record slower and import it slower and get the get the yeah. get the key and get the um everything right in the speed the right the first time that might be interesting I might try to do that record it to uh record it to reel to reel keep it all analog keep too. it all analog <laughs> that's right <laughs> I didn't have a record player for about 10 years and then uh last year I finally bought a new one you know i got a nice decent one and i was pulling up all my old records and then i started buying new ones again because i figured you know if i'm gonna i need to i need to find a way to at least support artists so if i like your album i'm gonna i'm gonna go find it on vinyl or i'm gonna order it and that's absolutely that's like, my uh my pbs tote bag you know like yeah, if nothing else absolutely. it's just like you know you yeah. pay into support and somebody like kind of burst the balloon on me uh, somewhere on a forum online they're like you idiots keep buying like new stuff on vinyl you understand it's still a digital signal that's been rendered to analog. This is not a fully analog. I'm right. like, ah, now you're ruined. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, I still do it. It does have a slightly different sound. I, I enjoy. Um, it does. Yeah. I enjoy, I really enjoy finding some records too uh, that come out now. And you know, what's fun. Hmm. I love Bandcamp. I think that's about the greatest site in the world right now. Oh, absolutely. Um, I started listening to all this jazz out of this London record label, uh, Brownswood Records. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to hear all this stuff that you would think was you were only going to hear streaming. And then I order these records and I make them send them across the Atlantic Ocean just to me. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Then, you know, <laughs> I actually work with a, a folk singer, this guy named Tom Paxton, who has uh-huh. been around since the 60s. His first album came out in like 1963. This guy is like part of the... Mm-hmm original like Greenwich Village scene with, you know, Joni Mitchell oh, yeah. and Joan Baez and Dylan and uh-huh. all that stuff. And, and, um, he's in his eighties now and I kind of run his online presence and things like that. And I've kind of been yeah. kind of opening up to like some of these possibilities and we're actually, I'm actually been in the middle of like launching this band camp site for him and selling some of these mm-hmm. old albums and, you know, he's got, he has all these albums that he put out in the eighties independently that he owns the masters to And, and yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, we can, we can sell these online now and do, you know, just yeah. do all this digital stuff. And it's just a whole new world for them. But it's uh yeah, Bandcamp mm-hmm. is just such a, a wealth of music. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty awesome. What I love about it too is, uh, I guess this is what it was like in the old days where you would go and people, you know, people would talk about, I'll buy a record just cause the cover looks interesting. Yeah. You know, you're on Bandcamp. I'm like, this looks cool. Yeah, I'm just gonna play it. Yeah, good in yep. the wish list. You know, then the next day you wake up and you decide, you know, which ones you're gonna order. Yeah, yeah. I did so much of that as a kid and into my teen years. Um, you know, because yeah. like in the '80s, I liked a lot of pop stuff, and then I got into uh-huh. a lot of like metal and then '90s alternative stuff. And like based on bands, I are I already was a big fan of. Like I could look at an album cover, the front and the back, and make a pretty educated guess whether I was gonna like this band or not. Sometimes I was dead wrong, but nine times out of 10, it was like straight up my alley. And I'm like, yep, I, I dig these guys. And that back when album covers were important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just want to give a little bit of love and just kind of run down some of the personnel who played on the record. 
Um, sure. You know, these guys that were instrumental, literally and figuratively, in uh, Billy's <laughs> early career. You know, I don't know too much about their story, but, you know, these guys played on the album that got everything started. So, obviously, you got Billy, who, you know, piano and organ and vocals and all of that. And then you had uh, Reese Clark on the drums, who played um, yeah. on the original Everybody Loves You Now mix and Falling of the Rain, Turn Around, Tomorrow Is Today. And he's got the cymbal flourishes on She's Got Away as well. So mm-hmm. um, fantastic drummer. And then you have a handful of guitar players. Sal Detroit on guitar. Don Evans on guitar. Jimmy Haskell, who did a lot of the mm-hmm. arranging on the album. And then you have, you have Pete Cleonow, I believe how you say it. on. Uh, he played the pedal steel on Turnaround. Larry Kenchel, Joel Os- Joe Osborne on bass. Artie Rip was one of the arrangers as well. And then you also have... Denny Sewell, who did drums on You Can Make Me Free, You Look So Good to Me. Mike McGee, drums on the 83 versions that Everybody Loves You Now and Turn Around. Al Campbell, keyboards on Turn Around. L.D. Dixon, Fender Rhodes on the 83 version of Turn Around. So, I mean, quite a quite a cast of, of musicians. I mean, and th- this was before Billy had his well-established, tight-knit band, so there was quite a few people who played on this record, and Obviously, different different people in '83 who played on the mm-hmm. remixed and reissued version who weren't involved in the original, but um, yeah, quite a few really good musicians who uh, who lent some interesting flavor to this album. Yeah, and Reese Clark in particular, uh, you know, he was with Billy for a couple of years there. He was on uh, Piano Man yep. on that album as well. Yeah, so yeah, he was one of the few carryovers to the next record. So that's yeah. Um, so I think he kind of found a really good thing with Reese. So as we were looking through this album, as we were doing some research, uh, it just dawned on me how short this album is. I think the Mm -hmm. 83 version is 27 minutes or 20 something minutes. And the, the re the original version is not far North of 30. Uh, it's just super short. And I think part of that is just the medium constraints. Uh, you know, these, these albums were done with, you know, vinyl records in mind. And at the time, I think the limit was 15 minutes on each side. So at the most, you could have a 30-minute album. Yeah. And so most most albums at the time were, you know, 20 to 30 minutes long and shorter songs and short albums like that. And really, with Billy, up through Glass Houses, all those albums are about that length, are all around the 30-minute mark. And they're, they really... Yeah they really aren't that long. And it's funny as you get into the CD medium in the mid eighties into the nineties albums were getting longer because now people were like, Oh, now you can put almost 80 minutes on a CD. So now we got to fill it. <laughs> yeah. So, and then you ended up with uh, like 75 minute albums like right. guns and roses. And <laughs> it's so funny. You mentioned that because I've got, um, Metallica's Load album from 1996 at the time was the longest album ever on a single CD. Oh, yeah. And on the hype sticker that, you know, there's a like a little (laughs) sticker that's on the front cover on the over the shrink wrap. It was even Uh touting the length. It's like (laughs) over 78 or was it 78 minutes and 59 seconds of of music, you know, And (laughs) and it was the absolute longest album they could make so much so to where it's funny another kind of parallel uh, the last song on that album is called the outlaw torn and uh-huh. to make it fit on the CD, 
they lopped off mm. like a two minute jam kind of like <laughs> not for time constraints, but you know, kind of how they did with, um, um, everybody loves you or you can make me free. Yeah. With how they did with, <laughs> with you can make me yeah. free. So they, they lopped off, they just faded it out and lopped off the last two <laughs> minutes. And then it ended up at like a B side of a single and they called it the unencumbered by manufacturing restrictions version. <laughs> and it's like 12 minutes long, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a dream theaters, uh, scenes from a memory. That one's 77 minutes too. Yeah. That was a, uh, 2000 yeah 99, I think so about yeah. that time so and i think it was yeah. kind of getting carried away so like you know these artists were being pressured to make these incredibly long records and you mm-hmm. were starting to get more albums that had more filler yeah <laughs> there oh, there were sure because you were getting these 16 17 song albums that were just like kind of overkill in a way and oh, yeah. and <laughs> Like you couldn't get away with doing a 27 minute album in the nineties. There's just no way they would practically call that an EP, you know, and having the manufacturing restrictions of being only to do 30 minutes on a vinyl record kind of forced artists to kind of come with their a game and like, well, you only get 28 minutes, so you better come strong. And it was always 10, 10 songs. Yeah. Until like the Zeppelin rule was uh, eight songs with two, eight minute songs each, you know, on either side. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, look at look at all those classic Beatles albums, classic mm-hmm. Simon and Garfunkel albums. They could make a huge statement in a half hour, you know. Yeah. And then when you get it on CD, you get some bonus tracks to, to right. get it up to yeah. 70 minutes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see um, Cold Spring Harbor, a nice reissue with some concerts. I mean, you've clearly got the time to put on there. Um, yeah. You know, we spoke. I spoke last time about the uh, the Roxy Theater. Yeah. up in Northampton, PA, and that was his first theater show because he was uh, came out, um, well, that happened right after Piano Man, but what's funny is uh, there was a DJ up in Allentown playing the hell out of Cold Spring Harbor. Yeah. And probably one of the only places where that was occurring. Sure. So Billy had this sort of like brand new band, and he brings them up to this theater, and he's, he plays everything but like two songs off Piano Man, but everybody's clamoring for stuff off Cold Spring Harbor. He's like, I just put this band together. We don't know all those songs. And he's like, hold on. We'll, let's, I'll do She's Got Away because I could do that by myself. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, uh, where would you put... Now, where does Sigma Sounds come in, the WMMR broadcast? Because that was clearly before Piano Man. Yeah, so that was done before the Piano Man record. So this was like in between yeah. Cold Spring Harbor and Piano Man. And that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the legendary, because that was Philly, right? Yeah. So yeah. that was the legendary um, um, ra- uh, radio broadcast where uh, Captain Jack came from before the mm-hmm. Piano Man album. And that's what, um, you know, WMMR, it was like the most requested song ever. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just a live recording, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that was recorded the year prior um, to Piano Man. So I think that was kind of coming off the heels of the Cold Spring Harbor tour, really. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I'm looking at it now. So those uh, recorded April 15th, uh, 1972. So just a few months, well, actually, after Cold Spring Harbor then. Yeah, and you know, that's another one. He, You know, the, the stage banter on those old uh, live records mm-hmm. are... Um, they're really fun. Um, yeah, you don't hear them on any of the on his official releases, really. Yeah, you know, by the time he was putting them out. Yeah. You know, anything official. The first one was Songs in the Attic, and that was uh, selections from different shows. And then, you know, and then you know the, the Russia one, obviously he's not going to wax too much. You yeah. Know? I mean, he does, and he has a translator, but it's not that same. But there's that old, you know, 
what an attitude he used to have back in those, uh, you know, back on those, you know, the one from the Roxy, you know, he's a bit of a smart ass. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, on MMR, he's sipping a beer and he's doing it obnoxiously on purpose and he's shouting people out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. That reminds me too, like the, the car, the infamous Carnegie hall show in 77 before the stranger, um, was recorded. Um, yeah, they, uh, Carnegie hall just added like a no smoking rule for the venue uh-huh. and like the, the venue like turn the house lights kind of up because people were smoking uh-huh. and and he's like they can do what they want they're gonna have to drag me off stage and i think that's what a lot of people loved about him you know yeah i mean especially you know in philly you know that's a it's a strong sentiment to have <laughs> yeah for sure yeah 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 april 15 72 yeah uh you already have some piano man songs on there but um definitely does she's got away mm-hmm. does everybody loves you now uh does nocturne um, Nocturne was, you know, that's another one that um, yeah. didn't really care about when I was a kid. Went back, I was like, it's pretty, you know. Mm-hmm. It Probably is. Probably nowhere near as sophisticated as Chopin, but, you know, right. it does a trick. And, you know, maybe and, I'm wrong. I'm going to have to check the sheet music, you know. <laughs> yeah. And after now hearing, you know, hearing that that demo version with vocals, it's it's so much better without the vocals. Yeah. The, yeah. That, it that, really sits. That piano really stands on its own, and just mm-hmm. being an instrumental just really really nice and you know that's only one of very few instrumentals that ever ended up on a billy record too yeah there was nothing after uh street life serenade right yeah yeah with the mexican connection it was and rupee and and rupee reg and rupee reg so there were actually two on the street life serenade record it's interesting too uh you know cold spring harbor was recorded in both la and uh in hempstead new york so it's recorded ultrasonic out in Long Island. Yeah. And it's recorded at the record plant West in LA. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty interesting because, you know, obviously his West Coast albums were Piano Man and Street Life Serenade. And you certainly hear that on the records. Yeah. And um, and this was sort of a hybrid of the two. You know, mm-hmm. it's got that, that LA thing he was doing probably really influenced the singer-songwriter aspect. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, a little bit of that grit probably was, the, you know, the New York side and yeah. You know, it's interesting to see an album like this, which is an outlier, uh, not only because he was writing with the uh, intent for other people, but, you know, those first two solo albums had that Western feel to them. And then he, you know, very uh, intently moved back to New York for turnstiles. Yeah. Or went back West Coast, at least, and put together a West Coast band. And so this one really sits right in between. It's got a little steel guitar, but um, it's not nearly as, as California as uh, Piano Man. Piano Man and Street Life Serenade, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even a little bit of Turnstiles played over into that California thing as well. And well, you know, you we'll think get, so? Yeah. Like Summer Highland Falls, I know, was was a little bit of like kind of West Coast, you know. Okay. Uh, yeah. Vocally. Um, you know, your songwriting, you're influenced by, you know, your environment. And so, you know, Cold Spring Harbor was, you know, his first album. He was still in New York. He hadn't moved out West yet. So that still, like you said, had a lot of that New York character in it and some of that going Mm -hmm. on. But yeah, as we get into Piano Man and dig into that and Street Life Serenade and all that, we'll talk about really kind of how that West Coast music influenced his uh, songwriting on those albums. We're going to talk quite a bit more about that as we continue on with these records and songs and everything like that so there's a lot more to unpack and it's been fun revisiting cold spring harbor um with a new angle that i've never looked at before so this has been really interesting 
Yeah, I'm excited to uh, to dig into more of these albums, uh, not only the songs that we all know and, and even some of the stories, but even getting into those demos and bootlegs and stuff and, and really putting it into context. It's been fun for, for me. I hope it's fun for you guys, too. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you haven't heard the record or even if you have and it's been a while, I, uh, I suggest you, you know, give it a listen and uh, put on a good pair of headphones and just listen to some of these songs. And I, I think you'll hear some new things that you may not have even noticed before. Yeah, block out a quick half hour. Yeah, it's real quick. The album's quicker than this episode, so it doesn't take too much time to carve it out. But I think that's going to wrap it up for this one, and uh, we got so much more coming down the pipeline. We're talking with some former band members about possibly coming on down the road, and we've got so many songs and tours and albums. There's just so much that we're we're just starting to dip our toe in, so uh, we're excited with what's coming. We'd love to hear from you guys as well, too. So, you know, we're on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and all that. So look up Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. If you just search for that, you're going to find us on all that, and you can find us on the web at glasshousespod.com. And you can shoot us an email glasshousespodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and well how was your experience revisiting this record we'd love to hear what you guys thought about that too so we'd love to connect with you guys and we'll see you next time yeah we'll see you soon take care 